0: Well, please open your Bibles with me this morning to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 20. The Gospel of John reaches a crescendo in chapter 20, verse 31. I want to have you read it with me. John the Apostle says, But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Last week we learned as we unpacked this particular section of scripture we learned that verse 31 really summarizes the whole theme of the gospel of John. And that's one thing I want to encourage you to do as you as you read the Bible as you study scripture to look for the major themes. Generally, you can find a theme that, that emerges from a specific book, and the theme that we've uncovered here happens to occur in verse 31. 21 chapters. I believe this is the 77th message that we have uh, come to to listen and to learn from in the Gospel of John, after all of those words and all of these chapters, it all boils down to this. The purpose of the Gospel of John is to press home the importance of faith in the Son of God. Every faithful pastor at this point must ask a, a penetrating question. It's the most important question that can ever be posed to you, and that is, Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you placed your faith in the Son of God? I think you would agree with me that we live in an age where we have many things competing for our faith. Some of you have something that is in your hands right now that is competing for your faith. You are dying to open up your cell phone. And check the latest scores or check the weather. That's a small thing that competes for our faith. There are other things that compete for our faith. Some people are tempted to trust in material things, in cars or boats or homes or vacation residences. Other people seek fulfillment in a career or a special relationship. Some people look for satisfaction in some kind of a substance, be it legal or illegal. We know very clear that people in our culture, they look for hope by following a religious leader, someone like the, the Dalai Lama. Well, the Gospel of John helps us to cut through all of the materialistic and philosophical fog. and. The apostle urges his readers, he urges you and I, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is, by believing, you may have eternal life in his name. This is the message that the disciples learned This is the message that the disciples of Jesus embraced. And this is the message that we too must embrace. I don't know if you considered this, but it's an interesting thing as we come to the end of chapter 20 and read what I have described in verse 31 as as the the apex of the Gospel of John. The the summary, the, the, the big message of the Gospel of John. You may be tempted to ask this question. What else will John add in verse 21? Isn't that anticlimactic? Some commentators refer to John chapter 21 as a sort of epilogue, if you will. An epilogue, as you know, is a section at the end of some books, or even a play, that serves as a a brief comment or a conclusion to what has already taken place in the book. And that's really what takes place in chapter 21, after we see the, the major statement that John makes in verse 31 of chapter 20. Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3 reminds us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so while John chapter 21, the section that we will begin to look at today, while it serves as a, a sort of an epilogue, It is also profitable for all of the things that Paul describes in 2 Timothy 3.16. Our responsibility then this morning is to, to wrestle with the reality of the words in Scripture in John chapter 21. We are to wrestle with and benefit from the truth of God's Word. I want to help get the ball rolling this morning by Posing a very important question. I want to ask, what are the what are the big pillar questions that you need to come to terms with in your life? Some of you saw the movie Elf. How many of you saw the movie Elf? Uh, one of my favorite lines in that movie is, uh, "Hello, this is, uh, this is this is Buddy. What's your favorite color?" Right. We're not talking about. Trivial things like your favorite color or your favorite baseball team or whether you're a a Chevy man or a Ford man. We're not talking about trivial matters. We're asking what are the the big pillar questions that you need to really come to grips with and wrestle with in your life. In other words, what are the ultimate questions that will have an eternal bearing on the way you live your life? The year was 1536. 1536. And John Calvin set to write what has become one of the most incredible books that has ever been penned. The name of his book was The Institutes of the Christian Religion. The first volume that appeared in 1536 was was shipped around Europe. It became a bestseller in Calvin's native France. It's an incredible book that went through several volumes, and the, the completed volume was finally published in 1559. Calvin makes an important observation right at the beginning of his book in chapter 1. As I meditated on these words a few days ago, I was struck with the importance of these words and the magnitude of these words, and I want to read them for you and have you wrestle with them as well. Here's what he says. He says, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and ourselves. I think we have a a picture. I want to have you look at that. Read it again with me. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and... The knowledge of ourselves he goes on to say it is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other now, in a nutshell here 's what Calvin is wrestling with he 's wrestling with the the big pillar questions he 's wrestling with the, the idea of of God and man, and he affirms that it, it, it is of vital importance that we first Understand who God is and that we also understand who we are. And then he makes this amazing statement. He said, it is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. You know what he's wrestling with here? Which comes first? The chicken or the egg? And I challenge you to think through that. Do we need to understand who God is and proceed to understand who we are as the creature? Or do we begin with the creature And unpack what the Bible says about the creature and then proceed to learn about the name of God. The names of God and the attributes of God. Well, Calvin wrestles with the importance of the order. In other words, is it most important, once again, to possess the knowledge of God or the knowledge of ourselves? We're not going to consider that this morning. But I want to challenge you to jump in the wrestling ring and to wrestle With something else. That is, have you ever considered the vast importance of knowing God and knowing yourself? Not wrestling with which comes first, God or the creature, but actually understanding who God is and who the creature is. So, for instance, do you understand the implications of knowing a God who is holy, holy, Holy. Do you know that is the only attribute of God that, that God is said to have in the third degree? We never learn that God is love, love, love. Or mercy, mercy, mercy. Or sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. But the Bible declares our God is holy, holy, holy. Have you ever considered the, the importance of, of coming to grips with the attributes of God? I was so gripped with this reality that most of you will remember as we began this series in the Gospel of John, we got, I believe, to about chapter 16. And I, I put the brakes on, and I said, I think before we move to chapter 17, we need to do a series, a rather lengthy series, on the attributes of God. That was actually designed. That was designed because I believe it is vitally important, and I agree with Calvin here, that we must come to terms with who God is. Do you realize how vital it is for you to become acquainted with the the heartbeat of God? What makes God happy? What makes God mad? What brings pleasure to Almighty God? I want you to wrestle also with this question, and that has to do with the creature. Do you understand the importance of the implications of what it means to be a creature? That is to say, to understand, and and you'll see how everything I will say competes with postmodern culture. That is, the Bible says we are created by God. Not evolved, not a product of, of random chance. That we are created in a holy condition. That is, Adam and Eve were created in a holy condition, and Adam and Eve fell into sin. And the scripture is very clear that at that point, every person that came into the world was born into sin. That sin is diametrically opposed to the worldview of most of what we hear in contemporary culture. The Bible says that we are sinners by nature and by choice, that we are totally dependent on the the creator for, someone help me, everything. The car you drive was given to you by God. The house that you live in, the apartment that you live in was sovereignly given given to you by God. The job that you have was given to you by God. The spouse you have was given to you by God. Everyone do this with me. Take a breath. Start over. Somebody didn't do it. Ready? One more time. Take a breath. That breath that you're holding in right now was granted by a sovereign God. You can let it out if you haven't Okay. Some of you are getting worried. My favorite professor at Multnomah University, Hugh Salisbury... A man who I believe I've shared with you in times past was a a man who in his 50s, I remember saying to myself that when when I'm in my 50s, which I am now, I want to look like Hugh Salisbury. I want to be like Hugh Salisbury. He was handsome. He was in shape. He was fit. He, He ran four miles a day. And Hugh's custom was to to run four miles in the morning, to come back and have his cup of morning, Joe, and to read his Bible and to read the newspaper. And he always prayed for the members of his tennis team, which I was a part of. And one day, he went for his run and he came back home and he had his cup of coffee and and read the, the paper and read the word and prayed for the tennis team. And one heartbeat skipped and he entered the presence of the Lord. That quick. Do you know that by the end of this sermon, one of us could be gone? God Almighty has granted every breath that we take. That is, we are totally dependent on the Creator for everything. The Scripture tells us very clearly that we are determined by God. Why is it that you live in Bellingham or Sumas or Everson or Nooksack or Linden? The answer is because God has ordained it. Why is it that you have the job that you have or the spouse that you have? The answer is that God has ordained it. Moreover, the Scripture says that as creatures, we are accountable to God. We are accountable for every word. We are accountable for every action. This is the importance of understanding what Calvin calls the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the creature. Well, the title of the message this morning is The Power of a Renovated Heart. And as we look at the Word of God today, we will see the Apostle John highlight a a, a very important word. It's the word reveal, R-E-V-E-A-L, that we will explore in a moment. But the question, secondly, I want to pose to you today is exactly what happens when Jesus reveals himself. With your Bibles before you, would you stand with me as we read our passage today in chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberius, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and they got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, "'Children, do you have any fish?' And they answered him, "'No.' And he said to them, "'Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some.' So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple, whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, "'It is the Lord.' And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat and dragged the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but a hundred yards off. When they, got out of the, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire, fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. We pray with me. Father, what a pleasure it is to open your word to read it together with the people of God. God, I ask that today we would understand a little bit more of the heart of the savior and that we realize that the heart of the savior reflects you, Father. That the heart of the savior is to perfectly uh, image who the Father is. And so, God, I pray that you would touch us by the power of your Spirit through the instrumentality of your word, that we would leave here changed people, that we would leave a transformed people, that we would not merely store facts in our minds, but that our hearts would be molded, that our hearts would be shaped, that our hearts would be revolutionized for the glory of God. God, I ask that this renovation process would would continue even this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Exactly what happens when Jesus reveals himself. The, the structure of the sermon this morning will be very basic. It would be very simple. First, I want to have you understand with me the, the very heart of Jesus. I want you to understand the heart of Jesus and to to realize that Jesus loves to reveal himself. I've already made reference to that word revealed that comes from the Greek word that, that means to make manifest. It means to cause to be seen. It's a word that means to make known or to make crystal clear. If you're reading carefully with me, you realize that that word that's all derived from the same Greek word appears three times. And I think it's significant. I remember as a young boy in the early 70s, driving with my parents... And this happened several times. And some of you will remember the days. It doesn't happen much more in our age of technology. But there was a time when you would be driving down the road and you would see the spotlights. How many of you remember that? You see the spotlights in the distance. And I don't know if you're like me. Nothing's changed for me. It's all the same. When I was a little boy, man, I, I had to know what was going on with the spotlights. Is anyone like me? Am I the only weird one? You just have to know. So I I remember begging my dad, Dad, we need to go and see what's going on with the spotlights. And so my dad would drive over typically, and I was usually disappointed in what I would find because they were usually selling, if I can remember right, it was either mattresses or uh, used cars or something. it's like, come on, like, like, give us something good. I was always disappointed. But the spotlights were effective in the sense that they they caught the attention of people. They made people wonder what's over there. And they revealed what was important for them at least to see. Now Jesus Christ becomes the spotlight in this passage. And we see that he's the spotlight all throughout the word of God. We also see that He loves to reveal Himself, and He does it once again in this story. And by the way, don't miss the word again. Now typically when you read your Bible in the morning for your devotions or afternoon or the evening, whenever you spend time in God's Word, you would read John chapter 21 verse 1 that says, After this Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples. My suspicion is that most of you would not do a word study on that word again, would I be correct? It doesn't seem to be a real significant word, but it actually is. Why? Because once again, Jesus reveals Himself. This this is a post resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you look at the pages of the New Testament and you see that He appeared to the disciples except Thomas. We, we saw that in John 20, 19 to 23. And then He appeared to the disciples where Thomas was present. That's last week's message. And today we see He appears to the group of disciples who were out hanging out on the boat fishing. But the New Testament also reveals that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. That he appeared to the women in Matthew chapter 28, verses 9 and 10. That he appeared to to Cleopas and his companion. That the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to 500 people. That he appeared to James, the Lord's brother. Acts chapter 9 says that he appeared to, you'll remember this, the Apostle Paul on his way to Damascus. And oh, did he appear! And there may actually have been several other appearances. How many there were, we simply cannot determine. But this is what I want to press home for you to remember. Jesus Christ loves to reveal himself. We've seen in weeks past that he had a great time revealing himself in a room that was locked. In other words, there was no knock on the door. There was no doorbell to ring as Jesus simply appeared. Remember, this is the post-resurrected glorified body of Jesus. And then we saw also that he revealed himself to the disciples in another setting in a locked room. And so the omnipresent Jesus, I want you to remember, is always with his people. And I don't know what you're going through today, but I know some of you are walking through deep water. Remember that Jesus Christ not only loves to reveal himself, but he is always with his people. One author says it like this. We would do well to keep in mind that Jesus is not way off in heaven somewhere with his presence occasionally sensed in a worship service. Have you ever heard someone say that Jesus showed up? If you've said that, I apologize, but that's something I, I never have understood. That Jesus showed up. I always think he was here before he showed up. So this writer says this, We would do well to keep in mind that Jesus is not far away in heaven somewhere with his presence occasionally being sensed in a worship service, but he is with us right now. Today and every day, He is present in the Christian home, aware of the sickness, the good times, the needs, the disappointments, the laughter, and the tears. He is the silent listener to every conversation and the unseen guest at every meal. In our story this morning, we find Jesus on the shore, revealing himself to his disciples who have set sail in the boat and are fishing. There are four ways in this story, at least four ways that we see that the Lord Jesus Christ loves to reveal himself. And I want to unpack those for you. In verses four to six, we see this, that the Lord Jesus Christ loves to reveal his sovereignty. He loves to reveal his sovereignty. Would you look at verse four with me? Just as day was breaking, remember that the context here, it's it's early, early morning. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Now, much is made by commentators here. Some commentators may be inclined to say, there they go, they don't recognize Jesus again. And that's the direction I began to go with because of the, the unbelief that we've recognized in the disciples. But then all of a sudden I begin to remember my days when I would fish with some of my friends growing up. And Dave, I think you would affirm this with me, is you're early in the morning, let's, let's say it's 5 o'clock in the morning, and there you are out on the boat, and you are about a hundred yards from shore is what the story indicates. And there's, there's a guy on the shore, and he begins to say, "Oh, Hi-ho, good neighbor! Right? And you're going, Who is, who is that? It might have been foggy. It might have still been on the, the dark side. And so I don't want us to make too much of, of not being able to recognize Jesus. It might have been just because of the, the weather of the day. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Some of you are fisher... Can you say fishermen in this culture? Fisherman and fisherwoman? Some of you like to fish. And you understand that... that Fishermen are a very interesting lot. Fishermen have things figured out. And so, I know in the times that I have fished, for someone that you don't even recognize on the shore to say, here's the strategy you need to have, might have been construed as some kind of an insult. In fact, I believe that it might have even sounded ridiculous for the disciples. Because Jesus isn't saying, hey, you're using spinners? Hey guys, use live bait, right? Or uh, uh, you should be fishing at another time of the day. They don't bite in the morning, they bite in the early evening. That's not what Jesus is saying. He just says, throw on the right side and see what happens. He merely calls them to cast their net on the right side of the boat, and the results are absolutely mind-blowing. As the disciples haul in 153 fish, and you say, how do we know it's 153? Is the Bible inerrant? Well, first of all, the Scripture is inerrant. It is authoritative. It is infallible. And I believe that John includes the, the actual number because if you have ever fished with a group of guys, you know if you catch 12 fish and there's four guys, what do you do? You divide them up up you divide them up equally and so i believe that as they they caught this huge mass of fish that one of the disciples had the task of counting up the fish so they could divide them up so they could divvy them up but here's the point the lord jesus christ loves to reveal his sovereignty can you imagine what jesus is thinking as he says cast your nets on the right side and all of a sudden remember they were no doubt discouraged there's nothing worse than than fishing a good part of the day and not catching any fish now in a split second, because they went to the other side of the boat, right? The fish weren't over here. They were over here. Come on. Right. And they throw the nets in and they catch this huge mass of fish. Remember this, Jesus Christ loves to reveal his sovereignty. The Bible says this, that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all things, that he is sovereign over the weather Psalm 147 says that he gives snow like wool, he scatters frost like ashes, he hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and he melts them, he makes the wind blow and the waters flow. The book of Jeremiah says that when he utters his voice there is a tumult of waters in the heavens and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and he brings forth the wind from the storehouses. In the minor prophet Amos we read, I also withheld the rain from you and there were yet three months to harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and field on which it did not rain would wither. The simple fact of the matter is that Jesus Christ loves to reveal His sovereignty. And here, He reveals it by showing the disciples that He is sovereign over every single fish. Second, I want you to see that Jesus loves to reveal His tender care for His people. Look with me at verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it. This is fish that they had not yet caught. Where did that fish come from? And bread, of course. I want there to be garlic butter, but it doesn't say that. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not It appears that as the disciples made their way to shore that the Lord Jesus Christ was preparing a fire, a charcoal fire, and that he had a a barbecue breakfast ready for these men. Isaiah 40, 11 says this, that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those That are young. And then, of course, Jesus himself says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord Jesus Christ, you see, loves to reveal his tender care for his people. He loves to, to serve and meet the needs of his people, even in something simple like a barbecue breakfast. And what could be better than coming off the, the windy lake and sitting on the beach and enjoying a barbecue breakfast with the second member of the Godhead? Third, I want you to see that Jesus loves to reveal the greatness of his resurrection. If you drop down to verse 14 of John 21, John the Apostle says this was now the third time, and he emphasizes that, the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. It's fascinating to me that the word revealed comes from the same Greek word that we saw earlier in John 21, verse 1. The word that means to make clear. The word that means to make manifest. The word that means to make fully known. And it's as as if John understands the heart of Jesus Christ. That he is excited. That he is delighted to reveal the greatness of his resurrection. There's a fourth thing here that I want to focus on for a moment that is all important, and that is that Jesus loves to reveal the glory of God. Jesus loves to reveal the glory of God. Would you hold your finger in John 21 now and go back to the very first chapter of the Gospel of John? John chapter 1. Where we learn in John chapter 1 that Jesus became a man... You remember that Jesus has always existed. Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead, was not created like Arius taught. Jesus Christ has always existed. And we are told in John 1 that Jesus became a man for this purpose. To reveal God the Father to us. Look at verse 18 in John 1. An absolutely pivotal verse. John says, no one has ever seen God who is at the Father's side. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. There's an interesting word here. It's the word made him known. It's a Greek word where we get the English word exegete. You may have heard, I don't think it's a word I've thrown around much over the last several years, but it's a word you may have heard a a theologian use or a pastor use as, as he says, I'm here to exegete Scripture. I'm here to exegete the text. Here's what the word means. It means to provide detailed information about something or someone. It means to reveal it in vivid detail. It means to make it fully known. Does that sound similar to the word revealed? And so an, an important role of the pastor and the Bible teacher and the, the Bible scholar is to exegete scripture. That is, the faithful pastor or professor or Bible teacher unpacks Scripture in such a way, he exegetes Scripture so that the people of God can say, ah, I get it, I understand it, and not only do I understand it, I will apply it now to my life. This is exactly what John the Apostle says that Jesus does. That Jesus exegetes God the Father. We see that Jesus reveals the invisible God. You remember in John chapter 4 where Jesus came face to face with the woman at the well. And you remember after they they visited for a moment. He said to the woman that the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship Him in what? Spirit and in truth. And so we begin with this presupposition about the nature of God and that God the Father is invisible. You don't need to turn there, but in first Timothy chapter one we see this same reality. First Timothy one seventeen, Paul says to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then at the end of First Timothy, he refers to God in the following way. He says that He will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I remember hearing RC Sproul several years ago tell a story about a time he spoke to a group of children and I remember him talking about how he was he was shaking in his boots, right? This learned scholar but he had to unpack the word of God for some for some little tykes, kindergartners, right? In Orlando, Florida. And so he got the ball rolling, and he asked the children, children, if there's anything that you can see, what would it be? And he thought for sure that in Orlando these kids would say, I want to see Disney World, right? I want to see Universal Studios. And this cute little boy raised his hand, and he said, I want to see God. And you think to yourself, oh, how, how cute. Or is it cute? Because the Word of God tells us that no one can see the face of God and live you see, this, this boy, while having pure motives, didn't realize that God is invisible. Jesus now, we see in John 1, came to reveal the invisible God. John 17 says that Jesus also reveals the true God. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And of course, we've already made the point, but it bears repeating, that Jesus reveals the glory of God. One commentator says, the Son, that is Jesus, is the exegete of the Father. And as a result of His work, the nature of the invisible Father is displayed in the Son. You see, Jesus loves to reveal himself. This is the heart of Jesus. But I would ask, how did the disciples, how did they respond to the post-resurrection, the the post-resurrected glorified body of Jesus? And what can we learn about the disciples as they first see him in the boat? And then as they eventually make their way to the shore. Well, I want you to see as we look at the heart of the disciples, I want you to see that the main thing that happens is that their hearts are renovated. And as we look at their renovated hearts, I want you to notice three things in particular. I want you to first notice their renovated posture. Their renovated posture. And I want to focus our attention just for a moment on the Apostle Peter. And I want to turn your attention back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, when Jesus gave Peter some fishing advice. Now, what was Peter's job? He was a fisherman. And so the Lord Jesus in Luke 5 comes along, and he gives some fishing advice to Peter. And Peter's response was argumentative. The Bible says this, Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and we have caught nothing. And I love these words. They, they are dripping with cynicism and sarcasm. And filled with pride, in my estimation, he says this. But at your word, I will let down the nets. <laughs> have you ever been there? And, uh, young people, have you ever been there where, where your dad says, this is my advice, it would be good that you're home by eleven. And you're like, you be home by as if to say, You you goofball, right? And that's what's happening here is Peter is cynical. That's your word, I will let down your nets. And after the disciples caught so many fish that the net, nets began to break, Peter realized, he understood, he, he remembered that that snide comment that he had made, I'll let down the nets if you say so, O Master. And he realized now as they caught this huge batch of fish, he understood the depths of his unbelief. And you remember what he said. He fell down at Jesus' knees and he said, depart from me, I am a sinful man. You will also recall this impetuous disciple who struggled mightily with unbelief and the story as he walked on the water and he takes his eyes off Jesus and he begins to sink We also know that Jesus was denied by Peter three times. Now in this story, in John 21, it's very interesting because the disciples do not question the wisdom of the man on the beach. Remember, they don't know it's Jesus yet, but they're perfectly content to take some fishing advice from this unknown guest on the shore and so we see in the disciples at least a measure of humility and teachability. This is what I like to refer to as a, a renovated posture. Secondly, I want you to see the renovated priorities. When John tells Peter, and look at it with me in verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who we know now as John, therefore said to Peter, and I just imagine, put your imagination caps on for a minute, Right? And John, John, you know he's the he's introverted and he's thinking and he's going weird. And all of a sudden, it dawns on him, and he's like, "This is this is the Dave Steele Revised Standard Translation, right?" He's like, "Dude, dude, it's it's Jesus." And Peter's like, "Whoa!" What does Peter do? He doesn't even slap himself in the forehead. What's he do? He jumps in. And I love this. He jumps in with reckless abandon. The Bible says he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples followed the example of Peter. And I had to wrestle with this. I had to battle with this because it says the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. And I, I read and I read and I read and I thought, wait a minute. All it's telling us is the disciples rowed to the shore. And so they rowed ashore, they get to the shore. They follow the example of Peter, and they realize it's the Lord Jesus Christ. They have now renovated priorities. Finally, I want you to see, and most importantly, their renovated perspective. Verse 12 tells us a lot about their renewed or renovated perspective. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And I hope you catch the the weightiness of these words. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. You remember that the disciples just, the day before, were witnesses to the belief, the unbelief rather, of Thomas. They didn't dare question the identity of Jesus and their perspective is totally renewed and renovated. This is the power of a renovated heart. Now the question that I've asked you to consider this morning as we close is this, what happens when Jesus Christ reveals himself? And there are really only two answers to that question. When you come face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing that can happen is this, your heart can be recalcitrant. Your heart, if it's already hard and stony, can get even more hard and stony. Such is the heart of an unsubordinate unsubmissive, defiant, headstrong, self-willed, and rebellious person. This is the kind of person that says, Lord Jesus, I don't believe in you. Think of someone like Richard Dawkins, who is an atheist. The atheist says, all right, if he he comes and he stares me down and he looks me in the face, then I will believe in him. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because how many people saw the Lord Jesus Christ during His earthly ministry, and they rejected Him. They crucified Him. And so the first response, the first thing that could happen when Jesus reveals Himself is your heart grows more cynical and more recalcitrant and becomes like a stony heart. The second response is this, and I pray that it's every person's here in your response, that your heart will be renovated. That when Jesus reveals himself, your heart is renovated. And that is the truth point I want you to consider. And that is that when Jesus reveals himself, hearts are renovated. The word renovated means to be restored. It means to be rehabilitated. And such a heart has a, a renovated posture as we've seen, and renovated priorities, and a renovated perspective. Calvin in his discussion about the knowledge of God and understanding who we are as creatures, writes this. And it is my favorite line in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. I read it over and over, and here's what he says. Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. You don't know how small you are until you contrast yourself with the majesty and the sovereignty of Almighty God. You may have heard people people complain about John Newton's hymn. It is, as you're well aware, the most sung hymn all around the world. What's the name of that hymn? Amazing Grace, who saved such a worm as I. You know some people take that out? Because they're not a worm in the eyes of God. But Calvin's right. He says that when we contrast ourselves with the, the excellency and the majesty of Almighty God, worm is not even the right word. Worm is not the right word. I want to ask this morning, what is your response to the revelation of Jesus? And how does your heart Not your husband's heart, not your wife's heart, not your mom's heart, your dad's heart, or uncle or aunt, or grandpa or grandma, or brother or sister. What needs to happen in your heart this morning? And I want to press this hard today. And I want you to fake very carefully and submit yourself to the Holy Spirit. And ask, what does a renovated posture look like for me today? That is, when Jesus asks you to obey, do you obey or do you question him like Peter in Luke 5? Or when Jesus asks you to trust him, do you trust him or do you walk the lonely path of autonomy? When Jesus asks you to cling to the word of God, do you humbly believe or do you, do you question scripture or scrutinize scripture? This is a renovated posture and what it looks like for you and me. Second, what would a renovated priorities look like in your life today? Are you willing to reorganize your priorities for Jesus? Are you willing to make time for Jesus? Dreen and I have some friends, and many of you have met these friends. And one day my friend came to me and he said, I think God is calling us to the mission field. And he went and told his wife, and she hadn't heard that same message from the Lord yet. And so they had to talk and pray through it and and continue to receive wise and godly counsel. But they were eventually both on the same page. And I'll never forget the day that we went to their garage sale. And you know what they sold? It's one word answer. Everything. They sold everything except the clothes on their back because Jesus called them to China. My question is today is, what would renovated priorities look like in your life? Will you, like Peter, plunge into the sea with reckless abandon when you see the Lord Jesus Christ on the shore? Or will you say, "Mm, no, I need to check this out, or I have other things to do, Lord Jesus. And then finally, how does your perspective need to be renovated? What does moving from self-centeredness to God-centeredness look like? From self-centeredness to God-centeredness. And the basic issue here is a mindset or an attitude that clings to Jesus and trusts Jesus and submits to Jesus. This is how my perspective needs to be renovated. The number one question I ask counselees when I sit down with someone or a couple is this. And it's always one that that gets people uh, to squirm, whether they admit it or not. It would make me squirm. And that is this, what does repentance look like for you? You see, there is no church answer answer to this question. When I say, what does repentance look like for you? It's not a yes or a no answer. It's not an I don't know answer. Is when I say, what does repentance look like for you? What are the contours of repentance in your life? How does it affect your pocketbook? How does it affect your time management? How does it affect your hobbies? How does it affect the way you treat your husband or wife? How does it affect the way you respond to your your parents' authority? How does it affect your, your involvement at Christ Fellowship? How does your perspective need to be renovated? And I'm convinced of this. We have come to a bit of a fork in the road at Christ Fellowship. And it's time to make a choice. Are we in it to win it? Are we here to to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because at this point, I'm going off the notes. It's time to cook or get out of the kitchen. Anyone with me? It's time to move forward and to pursue God and to pursue holiness, to pursue righteousness, to do as we talked about in Veritas this morning, to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. I am in it to win it. That is to say, I'm here and we are here to glorify God. What does that mean? It means I quit complaining. It means I quit bickering. It means I quit gossiping. It means I quit weighing everyone down with my negativity. And it means let's lock arms. And let's do like the men in World War II did. Let's be a band of brothers and sisters. Shall we lock arms together positively and repentantly? It's not a word. But with repentance and God-centeredness and say, we're moving forward. We're moving forward. Now remember that Jesus is the only one that can renovate your heart. There is not a self-help book that's available that will renovate your heart. It is Jesus Christ who will renovate your heart. And as you believe the gospel, you will know the power of a renovated heart. I want to invite you. I want to invite you to, to lock arms with the Elder Council. And the leadership here at Christ Fellowship, as we move forward, we have many exciting things that are yet to come. We have many things to do. I have a, a heart and a passion for world missions, and we have flat out dropped the ball. You could ask Galen. Galen will say, we send a check to every one of our missionaries. We've, we've never missed one yet, have we, Galen? We, we are faithfully giving to our missionaries. But I think it's time to have greater focus and greater intensity. And I have a few ideas that I haven't even shared with the Elder Council yet as we move in that direction, where we highlight the nations. Where we learn about Zimbabwe. Where we learn about Kenya. Where we learn about the Republic of Belarus. that We learn about the Czech Republic. We learn about what's going on in China. And it's actually my son that got me thinking about this a few days ago. Is he's preparing to write a paper in his English class on the persecuted church. What do we know about the persecuted church? We are about discipleship here at Christ Fellowship. Let us move forward and support the persecuted church and support missionaries who we send abroad. This is exciting. When Jesus Christ reveals himself, which I believe He has today and he does every day. He has a passion to reveal himself. When he does it, something happens right here. Our hearts are renovated. And it impacts our homes. It impacts our businesses. It impacts what happens at school. It impacts everything we say and do. Whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do it all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people whose hearts are renovated on a daily basis. God, I think if we surveyed the congregation, every single person, myself included, would say, some days my heart does not feel like it's being renovated. It feels like it's growing hard. It feels like it's growing stony. God, we all wrestle with it as we move forward and, and pursue the the great glory of the celestial city as we're excited about the day when we will no longer wrestle with the sin nature. We have a job to do. We have a job of, of making disciples here in this community and also making disciples of the nations as we send missionaries out. And so would you help us? Would you strengthen us as we move forward, as we look into the future? God, I pray for any here who are marginalized or have lived a a compromised Christian life. May today be the day when a a line would be drawn in the sand. May today be the day, a watershed moment in someone's heart. And I pray that there would be a watershed moment bursting forth in many people's hearts where they would say, it's time to get serious. It's time to show my commitment. It's time to put my money where my mouth is. It's time to, to dedicate my time and to pursue discipleship. God, thank you for the story that we've read, a very simple story. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for your devotion to these men, your devotion to us. We thank you for the little things that you did for them, making a barbecue breakfast for them, for your great care for them, for your watch care over them. We realize that you love to reveal your sovereignty, your care, your resurrection, and the power of the resurrection. God, you love these things, but most of all, you love to reveal the glory of God. Uh, may we have that same heart to, to see and savor the glory of God. First, in Jesus' worthy name we pray. Amen.